All right, so thanks again, everyone. We will start off today by talking about a topic that has been floating around for a little while on the boards, and Christina and I have talked about it as well. And that question is raising children the libertarian way. And what I generally mean by that is trying to get them into a situation where you can begin to use their labor as young as humanly possible. And, of course, that means uh, uh, training them to uh, do things like uh, heavy yard work, uh, hopefully um, uh, painting, uh, shoring up things around the house, uh, going grocery shopping, doing your taxes. And this is, of course, a very important thing because you've got to get those thing kids into the free market as quickly as possible and uh, have, them, uh, um, uh, have them try and become productive citizens of the capitalist economy as quickly as possible. So we'll be talking quite a bit about uh, you know, things like sweat, uh, setting up sweatshops uh, in the basement, uh, helping their little nimble fingers to do things like sew and pickpockets, and just trying to get as much uh, sort of capital utility uh, out of uh, children as is humanly possible. So uh, that that's, I think, will be the approach that, oh, no, maybe not. What do you think, sweetie? Because it, it's either try and get the children to do it or try and get me to do it. And I think that, frankly, we have more odds of trying to get the children, children to do it. Yours. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, so, of course, we, as I guess, the, at, the, at the extreme end or the logical end or the logical center of the libertarian movement, uh, those of us who are anarcho-capitalists uh, are you know, faced uh, with a challenge when it comes to raising children. And the challenge, basically, is that everything that we teach our children will be in direct opposition to the general falsehood fantasies and myths that society runs as a whole. Now, uh, Dr. Phil, who, as you know, I hold in uh, uh, variable degrees of esteem, talks quite a bit about this issue of uh, helping to socialize your children. And what he means by that is to you know, crush any sense of individual thought and individuation. Uh, but he also means that if you teach your children your own values, and those values are in direct opposition to the general uh, standards of society, then those children are going to face a good deal of difficulty. And Christine and I have talked about that as well, insofar as, for instance, we have a neighbor next door who's a Christian, and he has four kids, right? So once we uh, start uh, uh, breeding like rabbits, we're going to have uh, a challenge, right? Because we're going to say to our kids, uh, God... Uh, not so much, the state, not so much. Public school, kind of corrupt, but, uh, you know, maybe the best that we can deal with because we're forced to pay for it anyway. And then, of course, our kids are going to go over to slumber parties maybe once, maybe twice, <laughs> and then that question's going to come up. And other parents are then going to have all these problems with what we're saying relative to what they're saying, right? So if we come across any kinds of parenting or parents, which there's going to be many kinds around, the parents who uh, have these particular opinions, not only are they going to have problems with what we're saying, but they're, they're going to have problems with what our children are saying to their children, right? It's like being the first uh, kid on the block whose uh, parents tell them that there's no Santa Claus. It's going to create conflicts with other uh, parents, and so there's a particularly high degree of social problems that is going to occur. Now, I don't particularly mind about those, but uh, I just wanted to sort of cast this out there as an idea or a question around uh, what people think about this in their own uh, lives, in their own circumstances. So as adults, we face this problem as well. And also what ideas people had about uh, when it comes to raising children, whether you have them or not. So if you could just um, uh, sort of sh share with me your thoughts about that, I'll sort of cast that out to, to the group as a whole. Well, there seems to be other problems with parenting as well as far as dealing with this power disparity and how to resolve um, 
to justify parenting at all because of uh, you know the extreme power and uh, possibility for extreme corruption that's involved with it. Um, maybe uh, some of these issues may be taken care of if that fundamental issue could be addressed. Can you tell me a little more about what you mean? About the power disparity? Yeah, just, I mean, both in terms, I mean, I understand the power disparity thing, but just because other people who may not have gone through all quarter of a thousand podcasts might not be fully up to speed, and also how you see that relating to the improvement in, um, uh, in, um, in parenting uh, as a whole. Well, the word corruption comes out of the higher disparity of force. And the largest disparity that exists is between a parent and a child because the child is completely helpless and the parent wields uh, the power of life and death directly over that child. And that's why there's a lot of problems that come out of uh, abuse and, and bad parenting and uh, corruption in the family in general which also leads to the generation of the state, which is the other big uh, power disparity. So there has to be some sort of way to get children or reduce the power disparity or eliminate the power disparity in parenting in order to have it be, uh, I guess, a less corrupt system. And uh, there's thoughts about how this may happen, how science may um, increase the development of children, or how um, maybe having the elderly raise the children, there won't be such a quite as large uh, power disparity, things like that. But once there's a contract between the parents and the children um, that allows for um, arbitration and restitution and representation on the children's part, then New player. Um, I think a lot of the parenting issues are going to be kind of taken care of with that uh, kind of a contract situation. I, yeah, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. I think, I think that's interesting. I think that there is a... Um, an interesting challenge around parenting, and I sort of tried to go into this in the novel The God of Atheists in an artistic way, and I think the great challenge for parenting is that parents don't have a clue what's going on in terms of why they have authority and what it is that they're trying to teach their children. So in all of the moral rules that I was ever instructed on as a child and as a teenager, the basic problem was that nobody could ever give me any good reasons for why they were telling me to do what it was that they were telling me to do. And that basic problem, I think, that parents don't know anything really about truth or ethics, because we're trying to develop a pretty new approach here, and we think it's pretty valid, it's pretty logical, it's, it's pretty uh, empirical. And so I think what happens with parents is they don't know why it is that they're doing what they're doing, and so they end up really having to come down pretty hard on the children, right? I don't think authority naturally has to be abusive. I mean, a great, even greater degree of, uh, of uh, power disparity is between the surgeon and the patient that he or she is operating on, 
and yet we don't naturally automatically assume, because you're unconscious, right? You have no capacity to defend yourself at all, but we don't automatically assume that's going to be abusive. But that's because the, um, the surgeon really knows or is aiming to know what he or she wants to do. And so I think that doesn't necessarily have to be corruptive, but where there is authority and a, a need for conformity or a need for rules, right? Parents, you can get away with having a sort of relativistic approach to ethics or truth within your own life if you're just like a single guy or single woman roaming around the world. But when you have children, you have to teach them to some degree what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior. And if you don't have any reasons behind what you're teaching them, you end up having to bully them. In other words, when you don't have legitimate rational authority, you end up having to impose conformity. And the imposition of conformity is a very different kind of situation. Because when you're imposing conformity, you can only do it through bullying, because there's no self-interest or rationality in the imposition of conformity. And so I think that, I sort of have this fantasy, and I think it may have some rationality behind it, that as parents, if we really genuinely understand the reasons that we're telling children to do this or to do that, then I think that we'll be more benevolent, basically, because we're appealing to self-interest. So sort of a minor example that I'll have of that is that when I was a kid, Everyone told me to brush my teeth, but never told me why. And then I remember reading something, I can't remember where, about why you need to brush your teeth, you know, the sugar, and then the, the, um, the bacteria attack the sugar, which undoes your enamel, which causes problems here, there, and that. And after that, I've never had any problem with oral hygiene because it just kind of made sense, and it was uh, particularly kinds of, uh, it just made sense. It was rational, it, it appealed to my self-interest. And so that kind of um, instruction is very much lacking in the modern world because of religion, because of state schools, because of people's belief in collectives. They end up just trying to make children conform, which requires bullying, rather than to be good, which requires rational self-interest. Does that uh, strike anyone else as, as relevant or true? Uh, yeah, I think that's incredibly important, having that kind of knowledge and even awareness of uh, the power disparity itself, I think, will help things tremendously. I still think that there's a problem with um, some sort of voluntary contract and the child not being able to um, seek arbitration, you know, for uh, bad parenting or something like that. There's the awareness is great, but it still leaves open the possibility for. I think that's right, and I think w one of the things that's occurred with the growth of state power and also with the, um, with the imposition of religious ethics like uh, honor thy mother and thy father is that we generally, if we don't have ethics that is taught to us in a way that is based on rationality, self-interest, and provable uh, uh, morals, then... Um, what happens is that the parents themselves end up bullying their children, often with the right intentions. It's not like all parents just sort of wake up every morning and say, how can I best further destroy the mental capacities of my children? But I think that what's happened with the growth of state power and with religious injunctions around respecting your parents is that the consequences of poor parenting have been bypassed by the uh, the moral injunctions of providing resources to your parents regardless of how well they treated you. So, for instance, I mean, if, if uh, with my own mother, who was, you know, a complete monster when I was growing up and, and is still a monster now, the fact that she is um, on uh, uh, disability and welfare and now old age pension from the state means that I have absolutely no control uh, over her at all. 
and that is a um, uh, an issue because my brother and I were never able to affect any change in her behavior, like sending her to any kind of counselor or anything, because we never had any control over her resources. And I think that's a um, uh, that's a problem. And so I think that this one of the things I focus on is to try and get children to recognize that if their parents didn't treat them well, they are they're under no obligation. We owe our parents what we owe everyone else, which is that um, uh, we owe them justice. And so I think that parents at the moment can treat their children badly and fa escape the consequences of those actions, both through state support and by being able to guilt their children based on this universal injunction of you must take care of your parents when they get older no matter what they did to you. And I think that when you escape the consequences of bad choices, it's really hard to oppose those kinds of bad choices. That's another thing that the state and the church does which messes up the, um, the issue of uh, uh, the consequences of, ba of bad choices. And that's another reason that it's important for children to not continue to respect their parents if their parents have not been behaving uh, in a respectful manner. <laughs> Does anyone have any comment about that, or shall I start off on another topic? Yes, Stefan, I have a comment. Excellent. How are you doing, Francois? Oh, I'm fine. I just, I just think you should talk about what part of your childhood makes you not like me. <laughs> This, uh, for those who don't, uh, who haven't been following this uh, particular drama on the boards, uh, and for those of you who maybe have never visited the boards, uh, Francois' question about what part of my childhood has caused me to dislike him, it's that I, I was beaten by a bag full of Quebecois uh, men uh, quite often when I was a child, so uh, I do apologize for allowing that trauma to overshadow my natural respect for people who cuss and curse people on my boards, so <laughs> I hope that explains it to you. Yeah, you must have a traumatism from your childhood that, that makes you repel from that kind of dialogue, which you shouldn't, because it can be very uh, em emotionally fulfilling and useful as well. Well, I mean, I, wouldn't, I don't agree with that. Uh, this could be my... Uh, uh, conservative British side, who knows, right? But uh, my particular approach to uh, discussions is that I think that respect for another person's viewpoint is the first principle that needs to be uh, taken because we're all in a process of learning here and we're all in a process of trying to figure things out. And so I find that uh, calling people uh, effing morons and so on doesn't really add a lot to the uh, elevated nature of the discussion. And we could talk about this another time. This isn't actually specific to the parenting topic at hand, and we certainly can come back to that. But I do want to uh, make sure that other people get their own uh, uh, thoughts, if, if such they are, uh, to the topic that we're talking about around, uh, around parenting. So uh, as far as the issue goes of... Um, uh, of parenting, uh, do we do we have any people here who actually have children at the moment? No. Okay, <laughs> we got something from the uh, from the uh, Skype chat. Well, that's no problem. I mean, I have received some emails uh, uh, because I have dared to broach the topic of uh, better parenting in podcasts, despite the fact that I have no children. 
uh, of my own that I know of. And uh, so uh, people have said, how dare you uh, possibly talk about parenting, which I think is, is quite silly. I mean, we can talk about politics without being politicians, and we can talk about uh, uh, the nature of astronomy without being astronauts or astrophysicists. But um, I found that in my own experience, uh, with children, I worked for a couple of years as a daycare teacher when I was younger, and I also uh, grew up with uh, two nieces that I was uh, close to until, unfortunately, uh, my brothers, uh, they're my brother's children, and a, a number of things uh, occurred uh, that have caused uh, significant problems, mostly because I don't see my mother anymore, and my nieces began to ask questions about that, and unfortunately my brother up until a couple of years ago actually allowed my mother to babysit his own children, which was a desperately bad idea until she let the dog get out and the dog got hit by a car and killed, which of course could have been any one of my nieces, but uh, the fact that I don't see my mother has caused significant problems between myself and my, um, my brother, because as my nieces got older and they wanted to know more about this, I had to begin to tell them uh, more of the facts because I don't really think that children should be lied to and this of course caused an enormous amount of problems between myself and my brother which uh, basically ended up with me not being able to uh, see my nieces which is sad but um, something that is an inevitable consequence of living uh, a life where you don't uh, you try not to lie to people especially to children and you also don't take on ownership for moral problems that you didn't create like the fact that my mother is a bad person is not a moral uh, issue that I created I mean the fact that she was born uh, in Germany in 1937 and went through the war as an, you know, pretty much from orphanage to orphanage probably had a lot more to do with her um, uh, problems later on in life and of course her own choices related to that than anything to do with, with anything that I was like as a child. Uh, and so those kinds of issues do come up quite a bit when it comes to uh, other people and their children, right? So if I have children around me as I did when I was a daycare worker who would ask me questions. These kids were, I, have, I did a room of 30 kids or so. Some of them were sort of five to 10 years old. And the older ones absolutely had questions about the existence of God and what was a government and what was taxation. And of course, I would tell them the truth as I saw it at the time, which is not very dissimilar from the truth as I perceive it to be now. I've just gone a little bit further. Uh, I wasn't a, an anarchist back then, but I was more of a Randian or objectivist minarchist. And so I would answer those questions, and they would, uh, it would cause problems, especially the questions around religion and God, because no one was talking to these kids about these things in any way that was respectful uh, to them. And I found that these kids, uh, a lot of them came from a pretty bad neighborhood, and I found that when I was talking with these kids in an open and honest way, I had no problems with their attention span whatsoever. Uh, I remember sort of sitting down for an hour with about uh, 10 kids that just asking me questions and I was telling them what I thought and, and the reasons why the methodology for thinking, I found them to be absolutely riveted by it because it's not very often that children get any kind of truth or any kind of honest opinions or methodologies from adults. So that was very important to them, but unfortunately uh, caused a lot of problems uh, between uh, the parents and the, and the, uh, the daycare school. And so that became something that I had to do a little bit more delicately. And I guess my concern is that when I have kids myself, uh, with, with um, Christina's assistance, of course, uh, that, that's going to be something else that is, is going to occur. And even if we don't have kids, I think we can also talk about it in terms of our own social circles, because that's really what happens when you have kids, right? You get drawn into a lot of social circles if you go to... You take your kids to public school or to Gymboree or play dates or whatever, that you get drawn into a social circle. So how's it been for people just in their general social circles as these ideas uh, develop within you? 
what is it like for you in your social circle and we can talk about the family or of course we could talk about uh, just in terms of uh, friends and acquaintances uh, how does it work uh, for you uh, with uh, with these ideas in in social situations of which children of course would just be a subset so I'll, I'll put that out as well well I, I can tell you that uh, um, for for myself at least uh, most of these topics are pretty much off limits to my nieces and nephews uh, when it comes to me. And is that because you're trying to get them more into Satanism, or is it just because there is uh, a real hostility on your uh, siblings' parts about these? Uh, yeah. Pr uh, Do you see how he's thinking about this? Hostility. <laughs> But, but more of more of a fear. They they don't know what it's going to produce in their kids. So they basically tell me, hey, you know, want to talk about that? Talk about it with me. Right. So don't don't pick on children with the truth. Uh, pick on an adult who uh, has his own prejudices and can't be swayed. Yeah, pretty much. Well, and I can sort of understand that in in a sort of. Um, transactional based kind of way, not necessarily in an ethical way, but in a transactional kind of way, I think the issue that the parents, your, your siblings as parents are going to have is sort of like, uh, well, our kids are in sort of church, our kids are in Sunday school, our kids are in school as a whole, yeah, and I think that creates a good deal of challenge for people because let's just say that you as uh, the, the, the demonic rationalist managed to uh, put some ideas or questions into your nieces and nephews minds about the viability of fantastical objects like uh, a deity and also maybe point out a little bit about the coercion that is at the basis of public schools or the public school system well what's going to uh, happen uh, with them in the are they going to go to Sunday school and start asking questions and what's going to happen when they start asking their own parents those questions and their parents can't answer it and I think that's really the most fundamental thing because the parents are saying to their children you must believe in God God is good God is love God is uh, gonna give you candy and then when the kids say well what about this and what about that and what about the other and uh, evil uncle Greg uh, wants to drag us off to Stonehenge and do nasty things uh, with all the other Satanists and he's given us all of these questions about God then I think it's the parents own feelings or fears of humiliation and being exposed as people who have commanded absolutes that they don't understand or had commandments around absolutes that they themselves don't understand that I think is what they're most afraid of uh, do you get that sense at all or do you think it's something something else well I haven't really pushed it that much so uh, in, in a vague sort of way, that that's the sense that I get, but uh, I'm not 100 percent. So I guess that the the, the assignment could then be uh, to push it to the max this week and report to us back next <laughs> next Sunday. You know that would be excellent. So you're looking for nuclear holocaust then? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think that that what we should do as a whole is to look at your family relationships as expendable in the quest for knowledge. And I think that would probably be uh, an excellent approach for the rest of us, if not uh, necessarily for you. Well, I would gladly throw myself on the funeral pyre. <laughs>
Excellent. Well, we, now we have it recorded. Uh, we do. Uh, we're going to be submitting this to our local DRO as an actual uh, uh, as an actual contract. So this is going to be great. Uh, Addy, are you uh, on the line? Right. And I'll, Sorry. Go ahead. I'll I'll send you the bill for the cremation. <laughs> Actually, uh, we'll we'll just give uh, free therapy from Christina. That will be <laughs> the solution, which I'm sure will be more than adequate. Now is uh, is Addy on the line? He's here. Uh, yeah. Because if I remember, um, you had talked a, a couple of uh, probably about six weeks ago about your own mother, who uh, seemed to be a tad on the religious side and also a tad on the um, I don't know how would Greek uh, people put it uh, over emotional. A little hysterical. A little hysterical or a little over emotional. Have you had uh, uh, any conversations with her about this kind of stuff? His light's still on. I don't know if he's going to say something else. No. Uh, and uh, can you... Sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> the, the, uh, your light was still on, so I wasn't sure if you were going to say something else. And uh, is that because she's given you indications that she's unconvertible? Uh, or is that because um, uh, you don't feel that uh, she's capable of it or because it's just not relevant? Excellent. Well, I think that uh, Greg will be opening up a home for people uh, like this probably within about a week. So you guys should definitely stay in touch with each other uh, because I think that could be helpful. I, I do have uh, more of a um, theoretical question. Let's uh, let's hear it. So, and actually, I posted this on the board too once a while back. Um, in a, a, a in an anarchist society where, you know, you, you could pretty much raise your kids any way you want. New player. Um, say even in uh, a DRO society like the one you've proposed, um, how, would you, how would a society like that deal with people who, say, just absolutely refuse to um, uh, educate their kids at all? say, you know, there's some kind of an extreme religion or something like that and uh, insist on isolating them from society as a whole in order to maintain the, their mythology or whatever they have. I got it. Could, Player left. Could that be, I mean, is that acceptable, first of all, and if it is, is it even workable? Yeah, no, I, I understand the question. So let's say we've got some cult out there that uh, is uh, believes that the best year of human existence was like 1522. And so they don't teach their kids anything about uh, technology or anything about the outside world. They keep them in a sort of fence, sort of like that, uh, uh, with that movie, what was it, uh, where uh, it was a M. Night like, Shania like movie. Yeah, but there, there was a movie about this uh, that uh, the guy who made uh, The Sixth Sense... The Village? The Village, that's right. Yeah, The Village, where... Uh, beware, spoilers. <laughs> um, these uh, people end up... They think that they're living in the 16th century, but it turns out that they're living in, like, the 20th century. They've just been really isolated. Well, I mean, I guess, first of all, that can, that can occur now, right? I mean, you can go and... Uh, in Canada in particular, but, of course, in the U.S., it's quite possible as well that you can uh, take uh, your friends all and go and uh, live somewhere up north 
and you can end up uh, coming up with your own community and you could be undiscovered for years and years and years and you could raise children however it is that you wanted and there would be almost no access to uh, for society to come in and do anything about it uh, this is also the case, this occurs with uh, the uh, native reservations that we have up here in Canada. I'm sure it's the same. Uh, they exist in an unbelievable state of nature wherein uh, there's just no controls whatsoever. And I know this from having worked up north. I mean, it's just the, the way the children are treated is just savage. So, first of all, this happens right now. So, if it happens in a DRO society, it wouldn't be like a reversal or a deterioration from what has happened right now. The people who do teach their children, let's just say, crazy religious culty things, the, um, uh, they have to teach their children language because you can't communicate crazy religious ideas or, or any ideas without language of some kind. And they also probably would be unable to keep their children from learning about the outside world in any way, shape, or form. There would be something. I mean, they'd see planes flying overhead at the very minimum. So they'd have some sense, I mean, unless they turned those into angels with body contrails or something <laughs> they would you know in their mythology they would have to they would have some ac access to the outside world and so i would say that those children um would be unlikely to be covered by dro's because they're just like a remote montana cave dwelling society or however you want to put it so i don't imagine there would be a whole lot of dro's those children would learn language they would probably learn how to read because there would be religious texts and then the thing that i would say to is that the best thing that could be hoped for would be that the world outside needs to be enticing, as, as enticing as humanly possible to get the children out of that situation. So you want to make sure that you have tons of jobs available, that the pay is good, that uh, the living is, is cheap, that you know as free market a situation as possible so that people can at least escape those communities. Uh, right now, of course, in, in Canada, the Native American or the Native Canadian communities are so heavily funded and the children are so badly raised that they've become virtually unintegratable into normal society and also because uh, everybody requires a high school there's not a lot of apprenticeship programs unions have got a, a sort of lockdown on on physical labor which has made the barriers to entry enormously high all of those kinds of things have contributed to make those kinds of communities somewhat unescapable and so i think that it could it does occur right now in a way that's permanent Right, like I mean, poverty will occur in a DRO or anarchist society as well, but it won't occur in the kind of permanent and reinforced way that happens right now on welfare. Uh, does that uh, help as a sort of first stab at the topic? So essentially, as long as it's not institutionalized, um, then it's acceptable. So, like a, a Mennonite or an Amish community could certainly. Um, live right alongside of uh, modern people and there wouldn't be any repercussions for them. Well, I think there would be, though. I mean, again, it's, it's hard to look at religion or religious communities, which is what, what we sort of mean by, I think, this for the most part. It's hard to look at religious communities as um, independent entities. They're heavily subsidized by the state. I mean, first and foremost, churches are not subject to taxation. Uh, secondly, at least in Canada, I don't know what the situation is in the United States, uh, churches are also not subject to property taxes. And so it's important to understand that there's a heavy degree of subsidization that occurs for religion within uh, these kinds of communities. Oh, sorry, within, within Western societies. And so I wonder, I always kind of wonder what would happen to these societies if they actually had to 
um, bear the full cost of what it took to uh, sort of keep them going. So they do get some sort of Western uh, medicines, and they do get some, they, they, they have plumbing, they have all these things that come in from the outside world. They don't pay their sort of, I wouldn't say fair share in taxes, but they t pay far fewer taxes than anyone else. And what that means in a free society is that since there is no taxation, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of uh, their uh, appeal would be less relative to what it's like outside. And so I think what would happen is there would be a constant exodus of people from this kind of uh, society and I don't think they would last more than a generation or two because people would just there would be so much more appeal and opportunity and freedom and so on outside of those societies and you can sort of see this happening in the immigrant right so in immigrant societies so if you have like Greeks or, or uh, um, uh, Italians or, or Polish people who come to uh, th those particular communities generally aren't subsidized and what happens is that within two two generations, or at the most three, they're pretty much indistinguishable from those who just were here sort of generations before. And so I think that it is uh, something that would, maybe a charismatic leader would get it started, but I can't imagine that in the absence of subsidies that, uh, that make it more attractive that it would last very long. I actually hadn't thought of it that way, as seeing them as an immigrant community. But I wasn't aware that... Uh, at least in the, in the states, that uh, the the Amish or the Mennonites were really being subsidized at all. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Well, I pretty much can guarantee you that they don't pay the property taxes that they would be paying if they weren't those kinds of religious communities. I'm not entirely positive. I can try. Uh, I'll try googling it as we go along. Uh, for, for sure in Canada, they, 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 the churches don't pay, religious uh, societies do not pay uh, property taxes, and they pay much less in, in general taxes. And so uh, I would be surprised. Let me have a look that, at That's true. And so, of course, they're not paying property taxes, and since they're large property owners, it seems to me quite... Uh, um, uh, if they were to be... So everyone else is paying a lot more taxation, which makes them artificially wealthier. So... Let, I'm just going to have... I found the Amish FAQ page, and of course I have no idea. Uh, the fact that they have an FAQ page is actually quite uh, interesting. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, do the Amish pay taxes? Uh, Self-employed Amish do not pay Social Security tax. Those employed by non-Amish employers do pay uh, the Social. They do pay real estate, state and federal income taxes, county taxes, and sales taxes. They do not collect Social Security benefits, nor would they collect unemployment or welfare funds. Self-sufficiency is the Amish community's answer to government aid programs. Section 310 of the Medicare Section of the Social Security Act, ooh, this is gripping stuff, has a subsection that permits individuals to apply for exemption from the self-employment tax if he's a member of a religious body that is conscientiously opposed to Social Security benefits, but that makes reasonable provisions for taking care of their own elderly or dependent members. So they do, they do seem to pay some taxes, of course, but they also uh, they have, a, a, as a religious body that is opposed to Social Security benefits, and obviously that would be our next move as a society, uh, that would be, um, uh, that would be uh, they do have some exemption. Here in Canada, it's, it's a lot more uh, for church uh, owners. But the, sorry, the one other thing I'll say, and I, it's not on the FAQ page, but it just sort of makes sense to me, but 
um, what I would say is that the Amish probably do a lot more um, uh, barter than cash-based economy, right? So the question is, if you're in a cash-based economy, you're subject to a lot more obvious taxation than if you have a barter type of economy. So that could be considered a kind of subsidy. Uh, it's a little bit of a stretch, but it would have the same effect from a uh, uh, sort of a, a taxation standpoint. Ultimately, uh, you think that uh, in, in a more free society, that uh, um, groups like that would just normally kind of fade away over time. It certainly does seem to be the case when you look at immigrant cultures; those where uh, the uh, those where the cultural beliefs are pretty unusual, they do tend to get sort of smoothed out as people get exposed to a wider variety of beliefs. And this is, of course, one of the reasons why uh, those kinds of cultures don't like uh, to get involved with outside cultures. When Christina was growing up, uh, she didn't actually know until about the age of 23 that there were non-Greeks in the world. And so that was uh, something that was quite, quite, quite a shock for her, if I remember rightly, wasn't it, sweetie? Especially when I found out that there were good British boys, too. Good British boys, absolutely. So... No, but, but when Christina was, gro was growing up, she spent most of her time around other Greek kids. Her parents are still with the same sort of community that they came over with 40 years ago. And there's a pretty strong reason as to why people who have irrational beliefs like uh, cultural preferences or religious preferences and so on, don't like they like to stay within their own communities. And the best way to, for me to undermine those, uh, those kinds of communities is to make leaving them uh, as enticing as possible, which means I think it's having as, as free a market as possible. That's an excellent question, though. Uh, does anyone else have any comments about that? So I guess as a follow-up to that, then, uh, how, how, do you make, uh, how do you make the children in a community like that that are so highly isolated from the rest of the society they exist in, uh, how do you make them aware of it and make them aware that it's actually better. You mean to be outside of that kind of community? That it's worse. Right, uh, they've been isolated from society and they've been raised to believe that society is worse and, and you have very few avenues of penetration into that society. Uh, I would think that it would be difficult to make an enticing case. Yeah, I mean, one of the ways that I would uh, think of approaching that is uh, you could uh, <coughs> rent a, uh, a plane and, you know, those, the sky writing, right? So you, you could have, like, you could write in the sky over the uh, children's playground, uh, God hates Amish, or something like that. And, of course, as children, they would look uh, uh, at that and see that as a sign from on high. <laughs> so there's ways that you could approach it that I think would at least begin to, to get some questions going in the minds of, of the children. Very smart idea. Leaflet bombs. <laughs> Leaflet bombs, that's right. Absolutely. Uh, filled with uh, <laughs> pictures of nude women. <laughs> Here's what awaits you in the outside world. Corrupt and easy uh, harlots. <laughs> you know, whatever it takes. No, I, I think that's an interesting question. Uh, isolated communities and, and how to make them more rational is a very difficult uh, a very difficult question. I don't think it's something that can be solved through any kind of centralized agency or force or whatever. Um, 
I think that uh, children, and, and it comes back, I think, to a um, the real question around because every every family, to some degree, is a highly isolated community, and I think this is why this question is is very important. Obviously, it's not going to be a hugely difficult question in a DRO society because <clears throat> there's going to be very few of these kinds of societies, and it wouldn't be make any sense to infringe on other people's rights for the sake of those societies. But I think what's what's also, I mean, a, a sort of powerful underlier to this kind of question is the fact that that families are incredibly isolated. Uh, communities within society. There is an enormous amount, of course, of, of corruption that occurs within families, uh, within society, and there's no uh, methodology at the moment that um, uh, that can deal with that effectively. I mean, I've tried to write articles about how DROs would help that, but what happens is that parents who corrupt their own children, who, uh, uh, we'll just talk about the obvious stuff, like the physical or emotional or sexual abuse that, that has a significant impact on the children's productivity as adults. Uh, parents pay nothing uh, for this. They pay uh, no fines. They pay no uh, negatives. I mean, for instance, if, if I were running a DRO, I would be very uh, interested, as I've mentioned in articles before, in uh, trying to make sure that children were not being raised as criminals, because if children were being raised who would end up being criminals, that would make my DRO protection of people's properties that much harder, so I would try to intervene as much as possible to try and make families uh, not do that. I mean, I wouldn't be down to the last detail, but some pretty obvious things like beating kids or whatever would be uh, something which you would strongly discourage. And so I think my particular question is also around not just these kinds of communities, but how do you pierce this bubble, this incredibly strong, you know, biosphere of the family to try and reach in and help children? And that is a very, very difficult question. And I have, uh, I've come up with a couple of ideas that are somewhat helpful, but I, I certainly don't feel like I've, I've clinched anything. Um, what, what do you guys think? Well, I, I don't really have any firm ideas myself. But uh, there, there has to be a way to get the kids when they're away from their families, when they're away from their parents. Uh, to get the kids, uh, do you mean to get them away from their parents or to communicate them when they're away from their parents? To, to, to communicate to them when, they're, when an opportunity arises. I think that just trying to talk to kids while they're away from the parents, uh, if an opportunity arises, I mean, it's, it's certainly one approach, but one conversation may not be enough, particularly if they are constantly being uh, uh, subjected to their parents' ideas and perspectives. Um, it's going to be a very difficult challenge. But if you yell it. <laughs> I mean, if you're having trouble getting through to the children, if you just keep raising your voice, I find that that uh, makes you feel like you're doing something. Absolutely. Makes you feel like you're doing something. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So the uh, Sam Kinison of Stefan Molyneux, right? That's right. <laughs> Listen, kids. <laughs> My way or no way. <laughs> No, it, it, it is a hugely challenging problem. Um, I've, only, I've only a couple of times been in, in, in the situation in life where I've seen children being maltreated, and it is a very difficult thing to intervene. I think I've intervened two or three times in my life, uh, and uh, it's been a very explosive uh, situation. 
uh, if even if it's in public and you see a child being mistreated, it is a um, it is a very explosive thing to intervene. I do think it's something that does need to be done, and I don't do it because I think that I'm going to change the parents. I do it so, uh, and I don't claim any great virtue in it. I do it so that at least the child can see that there's somebody in the world who thinks that it's not right uh, what what is occurring. But it's not like I then say, and you can come and stay at my house for the next 15 years or something. Uh, so it really is a, a difficult uh, situation to try and figure out how you can help children within a, uh, a situation like that. Challenging children, I mean, they're also very, very defensive of their parents because of their own fears. So, you know, putting new ideas into their their minds, I think, is a very interesting concept. But when you're challenging them to go against their parents, it's very frightening for them. It, it would take more than just one sort of conversation with them, I think. Yeah, it's sort of like saying to people in prison, uh, you should have a revolt against your prison guards. They're sort of unarmed and helpless. You may actually be causing more problems than you're solving. And so, yeah, that, that's something that is a, a very... And it's one of the, the central issues about uh, making the world free because if children are not protected, the world can never be free because children then grow up um, uh, with uh, a very, very unhealthy relationship to authority. Uh, either they are reactive and uh, uh, rebellious in an, un in an unproductive way or they tend to be submissive and compliant, which only feeds and fuels the power of the state. So, uh, you know, the issue of dealing with children is, is pretty significant, and, and how to make children understand that parental authority is not the same as morality, uh, very difficult. Uh, and, of course, you don't have, even if you have a, a, a long weekend with a kid to tell them all about morality, that's one that's sort of three-day period out of 15 or 20 years they have with their parents, when you know, they're completely dependent on their parents, so it really is a, uh, a challenging situation. Well, Steph and I had a discussion about something very similar. Um, Steph has desperately wanted to have relationships with his nieces um, and trying to figure out how we can maintain a relationship with them without having to have a relationship with uh, their parents, Steph's brother and sister-in-law. We, we just decided that it was going to be impossible that no matter what kind of influence we try to influence what whatever what kind of influence we tried to have on the girls was going to be <laughs> somewhat grandiose undermined by their parents <laughs> well we were actually going to be undermining their parents rules and values and that was going to be make it more challenging for them to have a relationship with us yeah because the question of what what an outside influence can 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 have on children is pretty questionable in a lot of ways mm -hmm. because you know let, let's just sort of take this example because i think it could be considered relevant that, um, you know, I, I was uh, there when my nieces were born and I uh, was around them for, for many, many years quite very closely growing up. And then when they became older and they began to... Uh, of course, I had problems with my brother because he kept getting involved in these corrupt business schemes that were sort of one, shy, one step shy of criminality even under the existing system. So there were significant issues around that. And then what happened was my brother began to... Um, well, he always had been sort of teaching them about all these relativistic ethics, and he's very much for this kind of, uh, you know, forgive everyone and get along with everyone. And the only people who ever have any problem with anybody else, this is the sort of relativistic scheme of things, the only people who ever have problems with anybody else are people who are irrationally angry, right? <laughs> so everybody should forgive everyone, everyone should get along with everyone, and the only people who don't do that uh, are people who are crazy and angry. 
So in this situation, of course, my mother was more moral than I was in this kind of worldview because my mother was willing to forgive me for not seeing her, but I wasn't willing to forgive my mother for being who she was because she wasn't willing to change or improve or, or anything like that. And so what happened was because of my brother's relativistic moral worldview, his uh, children, and th this became very difficult for me, his children began to lecture me on how it is that I should deal with my own mother because they had been so programmed to believe that good people forgive everything and the only people who don't forgive everything are bad people who are intolerant and are holding grudges and are immature and who can't let go and who can't forgive and who are bitter and this and that. And so I began to, and it wasn't their fault, but it's, it's difficult to be lectured at by a 13-year-old about how you should deal with your own mother when you've sort of been forbidden from talking about the moral crimes of your own mother by your brother. And so it becomes very difficult and very complicated. And I tried a number of different approaches to that and tried delicately to say this, that, or the other to my nieces, but they were so full of certainty about this relativistic moral worldview that their father and mother, for obvious reasons, had instilled in them that they simply were, were not accessible to any kind of logic or any kind of, uh, of uh, discussion around this. They were just absolutely certain. And what did I have to offer them, really, when you, you came right down to it? I had the option of having them understand that their parents were morally corrupt, that they were going to be there for another, if you count university, that they had another seven or eight years to go being in their parents' care, and that their parents were morally corrupt, which would raise the question of should they accept the money from their parents for university if their parents got that money through illegitimate means. Um, their social circle uh, was, was corrupt. Their parents' friends were corrupt. Uh, their parents' friends' children, who were their contemporaries, were corrupt, that their school was funded uh, by violence, that blah, blah, blah. I mean, my, my, my brother is not religious, but uh, his wife's parents are religious, and they would occasionally go to, um, uh, to this temple and be introduced to this kind of religion, these kinds of religious concepts. And so that would also be... So I was really, you know, in a sense, I, I think in their mind, offering to push them off a cliff sort of so to speak from a social standpoint and it wasn't like they had any other options at the age of 14 or 12 or whatever so it is a really tricky thing to try and communicate to children because their natural desire is to conform to their parents and to gain as many resources as possible to get themselves launched in life and if you then talk to them about parental corruption uh, it's really hard to um to help them understand that, yes, okay, so the next decade is going to be really tough, but after that, yeah, things will be great. So I, that's sort of my, it, it's, it's a very difficult situation. I've not been able to solve it within my own family. My only hope, of course, is that um, as my nieces get older, they will, uh, you know, they can, they know how to get in touch with me, that there may be opportunities for us to have uh, better conversations or more honest conversations when they get older. But it's going to be me against everything else they've ever been taught and they've never been taught reason or empiricism, and so I'm just going to be one opinion that's completely opposed to everyone else's opinion, and because my opinion has no more weight just because it's logical and empirical, because they don't understand the value of those things, it really is going to be hard for them to see that I have any kind of truth value in, in what it is that I'm saying. So it's a, it's a very challenging situation. Yeah, it sounds very similar to what uh, I've went through with my nephews. 
Now, do you see how I took 10 minutes and Greg was about 8 seconds? Greg, would you like to expand on that just to make me feel a little better? <laughs> well, Steph, that's why you get the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I got my 50 cent donation today, which after the PayPal deductions, I think I actually owe them money. <laughs> see at an hourly rate. <laughs> no. no, but the, the two oldest nephews are just now starting to get to that age where they're thinking about those kinds of things. And uh, my brother does a very good job of keeping them closely guarded, you know. And so the handful of minutes that I've had to actually talk to either of them, they, uh, they've, they've already gotten into this habit of being very cautious of what they talk to me about as well. Boy, you'd, l you'd love to have been a fly on the wall when your uh, brother told them about uh, crazy, crazy Uncle Greg, huh? Oh yeah, in fact that was sort of a nickname for me going flying around for a while too. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I, I certainly, as, as another crazy uncle, uh, that has definitely been uh, the case. The one thing that did happen that was quite interesting was that um, my eldest niece, um, who I'll call Bob, no, <laughs> my, my eldest niece did actually uh, reach out a little bit to Christina. There was obviously quite a, a degree of shock uh, in my family when I got married um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, I had been a, a, a swing and single bachelor guy for so many years. I think people thought that I was rocketing a, a, on a single spaceship to the end of time. But there was a great deal of shock when I got married and got married so quickly. Uh, and w what actually happened was my eldest niece did try and reach out a little bit to, to my wife. And would you like to talk about that a little bit? Not really. But she did. <laughs> she did. <laughs> she asked, yeah, she asked Christina what, um, you know, what, did you, what do you think of, what did she call her? Oh, um, Dingbat Grandma? No, what was it? She, she did. She, she had a, a very unusual uh, name for your, for your mom. Uh, she, did, she, she did mention your mother and, and uh, didn't refer to her very, very Sorry, well. Greg, that's my mother, not your mother. <laughs> she, she did call her, her grandmother a bit crazy. Uh, I think that I, I really can't recall what she said about her. Because uh, you were at the sink at your parents' place, right? Now, what, uh, what did you say in return? Uh, I, I told her very clearly that you had some very good reasons why you didn't player want to be a, player. why you didn't want to be a part of a, a part of her her life, and she didn't want to have a conversation about it. She just ended it at that point. Right. So she, I think what she was doing was trying to sort of probe you to see where you stood in this situation. I don't think she was curious about my mother. I think what she was trying to do was to try and figure out if you were going player to be to left. someone who said. Oh yeah, Steph's got real problems with his mom, but I think we can work them out, and right. we can be a, a happy, close-knit, uh, crazy quilt of a family again. Right. Um, but since you didn't do that, um, I think that she then backed away from the topic because deep down she knows the truth, right? Deep down she knows the facts about everyone. Every, every child knows the facts, and you know that they know the facts because they're most resistant to the most honesty, right? So they have to know what's the, what the facts are because that's what they resist, and that's true of just about everyone, right? So um, that really was the only time that I think that she reached uh, out to you. I think there may be one other time where she sort of reached out to you in a way that could be considered um, uh, trying to validate that, that question around my mom. No, I think 
I think that was the only time she really did that. I think other times she was just trying to figure out what was I, what I was, what I was all about, um, whether or not she could have me as a confidant. And I think she realized pretty quickly that uh, I wouldn't, I wasn't supporting her parents' viewpoints on a lot of things, and uh, we weren't able to make much of a connection after that. Right. She she was looking for an ally to reinforce her parents' yeah. beliefs, and then. Yeah, so it is. Uh, it, it's really tricky. Uh, I, I've never figured out a way to do it successfully. Um, although I tell you, I, I really do think, thinking back on my own childhood, I really do think that if somebody had reached out to me, that I would have been very receptive to it. So I don't think that there's a reach-out scenario. I don't think there's a reach-out scenario that can change that situation unless the child is receptive and willing for it. Uh, to to begin with, so that I think is is pretty important to understand. It's worth reaching out a little bit to see if there's any reach out back. And uh, so I mean, the first time I came across Ayn Rand or, or Aristotle or sort of rational philosophers, I just sort of swallowed it whole and just went for it uh, the whole hog. And uh, so I think that that was sort of a reach out in a sort of textual format, like in a book. And so I responded to that. Left. I respond, can we turn that damn thing off? <laughs> Sorry, this player left, player coming. I'm just going to see if I can turn that off. It's really, really annoying. <laughs> Options. Can we turn off the sound notifications? Yes, we can. Disable all sounds. Ooh, that doesn't disable me, does it? <laughs> the horror. Um, but I, I've just never had any luck um, reaching out to a child except that I do know that when people did reach out to me, like I had a camp counselor who I would stay up late with in chat who was a smart guy who really thought about certain ideas. So when I have had that kind of stuff, it's been great, but um, uh, it's been really rare. And I was, for some reason that I've never really been able to fully figure out, I was very receptive to that stuff to begin with, whereas very few people as children or as adults tend to be receptive to any kind of rationality either. I like to think that it's just a matter of brains, but I'm sure it's more than that. (laughs) As we talked about, I think, in our very first or second uh, show, most of us seem to have a, um, a situation where our own parental authority figures or our authority figures in general did not seem to be people that we could innately respect, and that seemed to give us a certain amount of skepticism towards um, the idea that authority was innately valuable or virtuous in and of itself. So, so that's interesting. Now, uh, Greg, did you have more to say on that, or I'm just going to uh, sort of throw it open to any other questions that people might have uh, as well? No, I'm pretty much in agreement with you. Although, although I'd have to say that uh, at the age of 13 or 14, uh, I doubt pretty highly I would have been very receptive. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. It's touch and go with Greg even now, so... Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, I think, thanks, Greg. I'm just going to edit you out, though, as soon as you said although, because up to that, uh, it was great. So, <laughs> um, now, the topic of ch- right, childhood... Right, no bad stuff, right? No, 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 just uh, no, no questioning uh, of, of the central authority. Um, <laughs> the, uh, now, the, the question of childhood as a topic seems to be drawing a deafening silence from everyone except Greg. So what we'll do is manfully abandon that topic completely, and I'll throw it open to any topics that anybody feels like uh, chatting about, and we shall uh, ra- radically reorient the show uh, to, to uh, any other topic that people would like to chat about. So here it is, being thrown open. All yours. 
Now, see, one of the ways that this is different from a podcast is that other people get to speak. <laughs> so if people have fallen asleep, that's fine. I can podcast all afternoon, but if you would like to uh, to have any questions, uh, anything, in the last 245, oh, I just, I just did 245, but uh, I haven't actually um, uh, posted it yet. But uh, anyone who would like to bring up any topic or any questions, please feel free to do it. Oh, uh, Christina has a question. She wants to know why I still haven't cleaned the bathrooms yet. <laughs> but that's all right. Okay, well, I'm going to then, uh, um, uh, I'm going to continue uh, uh, with a topic, and this will be something that I touched on in a podcast today. Has anybody else ever been accused of arrogance in the realm of ideas because they have standards for proof or falsehood, or for truth or falsehood, which aren't just around opinions? Has anybody ever been accused of being uh, <laughs> of being arrogant uh, in this, this situation because this occurred to me with uh, one of our um, yeah you're being uh, so rigid yes I get that sometimes too Gregory gets accused of that all the time but that's mostly um, on the free domain radio boards I'm talking about outside of that Greg uh, just you know not necessarily within this community um, but can you sort of give me some examples of that uh, from from other people, if you could give me examples of that, where that shows up in your life, because I think I might have an answer to that uh, that doesn't involve uh, uh, swearing. Sorry, Francois. <laughs> oh, sorry, uh, Francois. You, you, for those of you who, who can't see the Skype chat, uh, Francois is once again praising my manhood and saying that I am, and I'm just a direct quote. I'm translating from the French here a veritable titan of manhood. So thank you, Francois. I certainly appreciate that. So one of the main objections I get all the time is that uh, uh, I'm being too simplistic, that uh, things aren't black and white, that uh, uh, life isn't an on and off switch. You're like it's not binary, right? Exactly. And what's uh, your response to that? Well, typically I try to counter with uh, um, I don't know, but the the um, oh, what what's that? Uh, um, the law of non-contradiction. Oh, yeah, yeah, that a proposition is either true or it's false, and that the basic laws of logic are pretty much black and white. Precisely. So, like, when you're dealing with uh, questions of, say, um, you know, whether or not somebody is uh, moral or somebody is virtuous or, um, well, like, a, like an argument I was having with my brother, John the other day. Uh, he has this friend who um, her parents are awful, I guess, but she still likes them, and he likes her, and I'm like, well, you know, that, that isn't that a problem, because there's, you know, if they're awful people, how can she still like them and still like you, right? And you know, right away it was well. Things aren't black and white like that. It's not a it's not a yes or no answer. You, know, that you could still uh, 
Oh. You can do you can do both at the same time, and uh, I didn't really have a clear answer to that, other than to say, you know, that you know, just to try and reinforce what uh, you know the whole point around uh, um, the recognition of of uh, virtue and vice and. How once you do that, you you really can't you really can't love both at the same time. Right, right. No, I certainly certainly understand. And the one thing that you can try, this may appeal to your nature if I do understand your nature to some degree. But this this is something that you can try that can be quite effective, which is to say something like this. And and you have to try and do it with the straightest face as possible. And I'm not that good at it, so maybe you can do it better. But it would be something like, "Wow, I, uh, I, uh, I thought I knew something about love. Like I thought I, I thought I had this understanding about love or respect or affection. That, for instance, if you love honesty, like you love people who are honest, or you love people who are brave, or you love people who are generous or kind or whatever. I didn't, I, I didn't know that you could actually love the opposite as well, right? So I love somebody who is kind, and I also love somebody who is vicious like I sort of had this idea about love that it sort of if you loved something you couldn't love the exact opposite because then it wouldn't really sort of make sense what the uh, what it would mean to say love right so you have obviously a more sophisticated and a richer understanding of love than I have like because you're very certain about this right you're not saying to me well that's interesting tell me more like you're saying to me like if I'm a, a kid in school and I say two plus two is five the teacher doesn't say well that's very interesting tell me more the teacher says uh, sorry that's incorrect and here's why and so if somebody corrects you it depends on the school yeah that's true sorry a decent teacher um, but uh, um, what uh, what you could say is something like uh, you could you obviously have a very deep understanding of love, so maybe you can tell me uh, how it works uh, so that I can sort of further understand what it is that you 're talking about, and then just sort of sit at their knee and sort of look upward and wonder as they 're going to instruct you on the nature of love because somebody who is able to say that to you when you 're bringing up a pretty obvious point, how do you love something and it 's complete opposite what what does that mean um, it's like saying you can live on food and it's complete opposite, the absence of food, right? Well, that's not anything, that's an incoherent statement, right? Um, and so uh, you can sort of just say, well, instruct me, and it's the Socratic method, right? Instr explain it to me like I'm three years old, instruct me, and then just keep asking questions until that person realizes that they don't have a clue what they're talking about. But that's some, I mean, that's something that I find quite helpful uh, to approach. Does, is that something that you think you could swing, or would that just be uh, too galling for you? It depends on the subject matter, because like this particular topic, uh, after a while, it was, you know, the hands go up and it's like, um, you know, discussion is over kind of thing. Like the, the other person says that. Exactly. Right, right. That's a that's a that's a shame, uh, because uh, people who do uh, and Socrates had a great response to this kind of stuff. Because of course Socrates ran into this all the time. Whenever somebody would say, "Well, love is this," or "Justice is that," or uh, "Truth and honor are the other," and then uh, uh, Socrates would say, "Wow." 
this is fantastic because I've been thinking about these things for like 30 years and I can't for the life of me have come to a firm conclusion but you obviously have come to a very firm conclusion and I really respect that that's something that I've been unable to achieve so I would really appreciate it if you could share with me your wisdom so that I could become uh, more knowledgeable and more wise because I have not met anyone who knows this as well as you do and of course the person then knows that they're caught right they knows they know that they've just been spouting off all this rhetoric and nonsense and they've been caught and so generally what they would do, as I'm sure you could imagine, is they do exactly the same. Oh, I don't really have time right now, or, oh, it's, you know, it's, uh, I don't really want to get into it, or, you know, they'd come up with some kind of nonsense about it. And uh, <laughs> somebody just wrote here, uh, Steph's got to be really old to have known all these old philosophers. I used to call him Saki, and uh, only his close friends would call him Saki, and I try not to use that because I really don't like to drop names uh, too much, like Hobbesy and Saki and Nietzsche. Uh, which is also something that only his close friends could, could mention to him. Um, but uh, oddly enough, Aristotle, always full name, uh, although he was sort of like Madonna because they don't remember his other names. But, um, and so these people would then try and get out of the conversation with Socrates and he would chide them. He would say, oh, come on, you, you can't do that. You can't tell me that you understand the nature of love or virtue or truth or justice and then refuse to, uh, to educate me on it. I mean, if you've got this incredible wisdom, you must share it with me. I mean, it would be, it's very unkind to tell me that I'm wrong and then not to help me out of my error. That's just cruel. It's like a doctor diagnosing that what, you know, something you're doing is going to kill you and then refusing to tell you what it is. It's just very cruel. So I think that uh, that might be an approach where you, you, know, you just chide someone. I mean, it doesn't often work, but at least it does mean that they're not going to be as glib in correcting you in the future. And I think that's actually quite useful. I think what you want to do is just shoot, shoot across someone's, uh, shoot a sort of harpoon across their bows so that they're not going to be quite so glib at uh, just dismissing your ideas in the future because you're not going to sort of go, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm wrong. And you're not going to get angry. You're just going to be somebody who's like, okay, well, then instruct me. If you know so much, I really want to learn this stuff, so great. And then they'll obviously try and run away. But overall, I think that they will um, uh, have more respect for you and le will be less likely to sort of try and dismiss your ideas in the future. It, it takes an awful lot of work to get even to that point. Like you were saying was it last week or the week before the example of the rabbit and the breadcrumbs you know it takes I mean it's taken me um, what three months to come around to the point of view on the board and and I was already sort of disposed to the whole approach already anyway you know and so It's, it's tough to take a tack like that, the, the Socratic tack, unless you've already primed the pump someone, otherwise you just chase people away. Right, but I think the tracing... I'm going to shut the discussion down. I think that's true, but I think that uh, uh, shut, uh, chasing people away and shutting the discussion down, I think can be an enormously productive thing to do. And in this, I differ from a lot of people in, in the movement. Um, I really don't believe in outreach uh, that much. I know that that's odd for a guy who's got a quarter of a thousand podcasts uh, cooking around, but I really don't believe in outreach at all. Uh, I'm not emailing off invitations to come and listen to Free Domain Radio to, um, to uh, you know, socialists or, or Democrats or Republicans. 
Um, I do have occasionally. I've, I've um, got uh, a conser- I've got a couple of conservative tags in the free domain radio tags, so I do get some conservative emails from time to time. But all that the conservatives and the Democrats seem to want to do is tell me that I'm uh, morally insane and mentally ill, and uh, uh, that's not true anymore. Is, is that right, sweetie? <laughs> Uh, you really, really don't want to go there on, on the radio show. Wait, wait. Oh, chewing one of those tablets. Ah, uh, so much better. <laughs> but, uh, so, I mean, there's no, discussion. there's no discussion at that point, right? I mean, so I think that closing down the discussion with people is a, uh, it's a, bit, it's a, bit, um, it's a good way to go. And somebody here has said, word of mouth is the best way to go. And I think that's, uh, that's very true as well. Um, because we are trying to find those people out there whose natures are aligned with, you know, empiricism, scientific method, and rationality, and so on. And because we, we simply, uh, the ideas are so unusual, given the current uh, climate of society, that reorienting someone from a very different perspective is a lot of work relative to the gains, and there's going to be a lot of backsliding uh, to those people as well, right? So you, what's going to happen is, and I did this when I was younger, like I'd work uh, like, a, like a Viking uh, climbing a mountain, I'd work to get someone to change their mind about one topic. And then uh, what would happen is they'd just immediately backslide and go, because their nature wasn't aligned with it. Now, I think that as as we begin to have more effect, and this is why I'm sort of trying to make sure that I communicate as much as possible to people, uh, pre-children and when they're young and so on, we'll begin to liberate human nature from all of this conformity and all of this compliance and all of this cultural imprinting and religious imprinting that is currently smashing up their natural natures we will begin to have an effect, and it's probably going to be intergenerational, although it could be sooner than that, but uh, the, I think that, that getting rid of debates is as important as debating. Right? You want to get rid of people that you're not... This is something I've learned in sales, right? You don't spend a lot of effort on somebody who doesn't have any interest in your product. It's just not going to work. So I think that closing down discussions can be a very useful thing as well. Because then, you know, it doesn't mean you don't ever have a relationship with that person again. It just means that you, you know, stay in the safe realm of small talk if, uh, you know, if, they, if they've got uh, a good barbecue. Like my neighbor, he's a Christian, and uh, he barbecues beautifully, and he's always got a fridge full of beer. So I'll go over and I'll shoot the shit with him from time to time. And, uh, you know, I don't uh, tell him that uh, he's raising his children in a corrupt manner because uh, of the aforementioned uh, meat and drink. So... Uh, you know, that's, uh, uh, it's, not, it's not a constant, but of course I wouldn't have that discussion with him because, you know, I've got to live by the guy uh, for the next 20 years, I hope, and uh, what's the point? So then, uh, would you say the same thing goes for families? Uh, no. No, I don't, uh, I don't feel that to be the case uh, with families. I have no history with this guy. He has no hold over me. The thing, the thing that I think is different with families, um, Greg, is that uh, families uh, will always have incredible power over you. Uh, there's just uh, no way that 20 years of first impressions can be uh, ameliorated in any way, shape, or form. It would be like trying to unlearn English, right? You, you sort of got imprinted, and so families will always have an enormous amount of power over you, and that's why I've always found that it's, it's impossible to uh, be around a corrupt family uh, in the long run. That's sort of been my experience, and it's something that uh, Christina and I still debate from time to time. And it's something that I put out in a number of podcasts, but I think that, um, uh, I think that it's, not, um, uh, it's not possible to be around family that is corrupt in the long run, because 
they just they always have so much power over you that uh, just based on history. So uh, the, I think that is quite different. Now there may be people out there who found a way to not have a family have as much power over them, and I think that's great. Uh, I'd certainly like to hear more about that. Just before we get to that, Adia said, "So, so you sell out your ideas for a few cold ones." Perfectly valid question, of course. And the answer is no, I don't, because I'm not discussing my ideas with this gentleman. Uh, so if he said, I will give you a beer if you tell me that what you believe is wrong, and I took that beer, then yes, I would absolutely be selling out my ideas, not even for a few cold ones, but one possibly even lukewarm one. But if I'm not discussing my ideas at all uh, with this gentleman for reasons that uh, I've sort of mentioned, I don't think it's the same. Uh, so I think that... Uh, uh, cohabitation, not collaboration, is an excellent phrase that I'd like to claim for myself, though it actually came from Greg. So, yeah, cohabitation, not collaboration, I think is... Uh, um, now, somebody else has said here, um, I'm going to call him Cassandra, um, my family is very into the church and very Republican, but I was raised to have an open mind. But I was raised to have an open mind. Can you tell me a little more about that? If you have no microphone... Just tap. Because I'm not sure I understand the sort of sequence of that. Tap. <laughs> I know Morse. <laughs> um, Cassandra, if you could just give me a little bit more about that, that would be great. My family is very into the church and very Republican. See, that sounds like not so much with the open mind, but I was raised to have an open mind. That actually sounds a little bit like Greg's family, if I remember uh, that uh, correctly. Uh, Greg, uh, your father was, uh, privately at least when he was allowed by your mother, um, interested in having you guys think for yourself, but then in public, uh, not so much. Is that, uh, is my memory serve me well there? Uh, yeah, Mom, mom's a Roman Catholic, uh, diehard Roman Catholic from an a immigrant Irish family, and uh, Dad is a moderate Republican, and Dad was always more the... Um, uh, the dominant figure in the household. So when he got it in his mind that uh, we were going to have a discussion on something, my mom would take a back seat. Do you have any tips about how a man can become the dominant member of the household? Uh, I got to tell you, it's it's uh, it's um, it's not working for me very well. I don't think any tips Actually, would help that's you. Not really a, a that, that's not really a complete characterization either because my mom used to manipulate my dad a lot. But every once in a while he'd get a, you know, a stubborn streak in him and, and we'd, uh, and off we'd go down the rabbit trail. Right, right. Now, uh, Cassandra has actually um, gone into a little bit more detail here. He said, they had taught me to evaluate everything. This is the uh, gentleman uh, or lady. Uh, who has the uh, church and Republican uh, family, a church-based and Republican family. They said, they had taught me to evaluate everything. They are okay with me believing what I want as long as I don't embarrass the family. So I guess they're Italian. Right? Don't embarrass the family. Um, I, can't, um, uh, I, can, I can believe what I want as long as we speak behind closed doors. Um, never, never disagree with others in front of the family. Uh, they will question me to death to ensure that I have thought about what I believe. Now, that's interesting, because if somebody says they're, they, that their parents have taught me to evaluate everything, if they are okay with, uh, they're okay with me believing what I want as long as I don't embarrass the family, that's interesting. 
Um, what does that mean to say that um, you can believe what you want as long as it doesn't uh, embarrass the family? That is interesting. So that means that you can have beliefs, but that those beliefs are not valid or helpful or productive or useful if they offend people in general. Right, so if, if they offend others, so there's values in questions, but the ultimate value is conformity. And that seems like a sort of a mixed message. Would that be, what do you think? Well, I would wonder what it means to, to take you behind closed doors and question you on your beliefs. Uh, do they then try you to talk you out of those beliefs? Do they say, well, okay, those beliefs are sound. And if they do say that, then are you then allowed to talk about them? Um, it's very confusing. Same thing when I found out about Santa Claus. I could not tell my cousins that he did not exist. Interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, this whole Santa Claus thing is another thing that should never, ever, ever, ever be taught to children, just in my view. I think teaching Santa Claus, this is a by-the-by, minor rant, I'll get back on track in a sec. Teaching Santa Claus to children is a really specious and corrupt thing to do. Um... It is uh, really for the uh, delight of the parents, and the delight is in basically lying to the children and abusing their trust. But um, I can come back to that another time. They didn't try and talk me out of anything, just I cannot undermine the aunt's and uncle's teaching. Uh, my father's family were hellfire Baptists. Um, I guess that means bad Baptists who went to hell. Is that, is that right? My mother's family were Jehovah's Witnesses. Um... So they agreed that whatever they believed, a preset of family will believe they were cursed. Therefore, I was raised to have an open mind. Right. I got it. I got it. So basically, everybody has crazy, opposing, random, vicious, absolutist beliefs. And therefore, since everybody's up to their nose in gasoline, uh, nobody's going to light a match. Right. That's, is, that, is that a fair way of, of putting it? That because everybody is both irrational and absolutist and that it's all an argument for morality, you can't talk about anything that has any kind of weight. I said cancelled themselves out. Right. Boy, if only all those religious people did cancel themselves out, that would actually be a good thing. We're going to put all the religious people into a mud pit. <laughs> See who comes out. But unfortunately, what happens is that a mental paralysis and a social paralysis comes along instead, and nobody can talk about anything uh, whatsoever. And so I would imagine that if this kind of emotionally volatile situation, um, that you end up in the situation where you agree to disagree. Uh, yes, he adds, yes, we have come to the point of understanding that we have different beliefs and just avoid the subjects. And that is um, a bad thing, in my humble opinion. That is not an appropriate way to deal with uh, conflicts of ideas um, in, a, in a family. Basically what happens is you say that uh, we agree to disagree is not uh, how you deal with things in a particular, um, uh, in, in any kind of rational situation. Because what you're saying then is that everyone can have whatever opinions they want. Nobody can oppose those opinions because everybody has nothing but opinions, but everyone believes it in an absolutist way. Like, if I have an opinion that, I don't know, Fight Club is a great movie, and you have an opinion that it's not a great movie, well, we can discuss that, right? We can sort of have a back and forth about it. If I think that uh, the theory of relativity is better than Newton's theory of, of, you know, material organization, we can have a discussion about that. We can have a discussion about how good a writer Dickens is. We can discuss all of that kind of stuff and come to some really valuable things out of it because we recognize that what we're bringing to the table is opinions, right? 
And so I think this is a pretty girl. Well, I think it's not a pretty girl. We can discuss it. It's an opinion. But if what we bring to the table is absolutes, right, that uh, Jehovah uh, really should have had witnesses. I don't know what, what they believe, but, you know, uh, the, the Baptists, are the, they believe it's, it's absolute, that it's a fact, that it's real, that it's objective, that it's true, but everyone believes things that are completely incompatible, but all everyone considers that their beliefs are true, then you're in a profoundly irrational situation because it's logically impossible for opposing positions to be equally true. All right, 2 plus 2 is 4 versus 2 plus 2 is blue uh, is not a situation where compromise can exist. And so it's not uh, helpful for children to say that everyone can believe whatever they want in an absolutist manner and we just can't talk about it because it's going to create too much conflict. It's very unhealthy. It teaches children that ideas are something you can't discuss, that ideas are something that make you lonely, that absolutism causes conflict, that any kind of integrity causes uh, social um, violence. Uh, it's a really uh, terrible, terrible situation uh, to be in, in my uh, view, and I think relatively objectively, because ideas or truth or virtue then becomes the enemy of intimacy. And it is, in fact, quite the opposite in life, that what is logical and what is true brings us closer together. And intimacy is based on reality. It is based on what is objective. It is based on what is true and what is virtuous in an objective sense. So it is incredibly isolating to have a community where everyone has opposing beliefs. Nobody can, they can't resolve them in any kind of way, and nobody can talk about anything. It's a profoundly isolating uh, place to be, and a situation wherein children are inevitably taught that ideas are dangerous. Does that, uh, does that ring at all true, or, or is that just, uh, uh, he says, uh, no. Uh, okay, if you could tell me more, uh, that would be good. Because, again, it's a lot more succinct than what I was saying, so <laughs> that would be good. Yeah, my, my thought on it was that um, if, no, if you have silence in a situation, that allows for you to develop your own ideas. Well, sure, I understand that, but what does it mean to develop your own ideas? Can you develop ideas like the world is shaped like a banana and uh, 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 birds actually burrow underground instead of flying? I mean, when it, what does it mean to say that you can come up with your own ideas if there's no criteria by which they can be discussed and refined? Uh, are you then pretty much developing your own ideas purely in isolation? How do you determine whether the ideas that you're developing are valid or not valid or true or false? Well, I went to the library. Yes, but of course the library is most often, especially in the realm of philosophy, just filled up with other people's ideas. So I'm not sure that that uh, helps. Uh, a little, but my ma and pa are not prone to anger, so we can discuss a little, but for debates I listen to and discuss with my friends, which is good. Uh, but again, when it comes to the debating, how do you know whether or not what you're debating, uh, the conclusions that you come to are true or false? Like in science, they have a scientific method, right, where they can determine with some degree of accuracy the truth or falsehood of various propositions and positions. In uh, health, in medicine, they have the same thing, right? Does it actually cure the illness or make someone better or worse? And so when it comes to debates which have come out of a family in this situation, um, uh, if you have no methodology for determining truth and falsehood, then what does it mean to debate with people? How do you know? whether or not you're getting closer to the truth or not, or you do often end up in a situation where you either agree with the people to begin with, or you just end up with agreeing to disagree at the end of it. 
Now, somebody here has uh, mentioned, I started with the scientific method, which is good. i certainly like to know what you've grown into because I can't think of a better one. <laughs> um, yeah, if you have microphones, feel free to speak. Um, that, would be, that would be nice, too. Because otherwise, what I'll start doing is start giving everyone girly voices and obscure foreign accents. <laughs> well, I just started listening to you, someone says, so I have only yet begun to run with the scientific method. Okay, good. Excellent. So we are still searching for the truth. That's correct. Absolutely. Uh, and of course, the truth is a, is a journey. And the journey is the, the signpost and the methodology for navigating that is uh, logic, empiricism, objective, reality, the scientific truth, the evidence of the senses, all of that good stuff. Uh, I just did a podcast today wherein, because I was accused last week and have been accused many times before of being um, uh, arrogant, um, I have always found that to be a difficult uh, thing to hear about. Um, because I, I think, I feel incredibly humble as, as a thinker. And the reason that I feel incredibly humble is that I'm always uh, subject to correction. Because no, none of my opinions mean anything, right? None of my opinions mean, mean smack. Uh, they're not a, a fart in a strong wind, as, as uh, the Texans sometimes say. And so I feel incredibly humble because if somebody can disprove me, if somebody can show me evidence to the contrary, then obviously I'm going to, like any good scientist or theoretician, I'm going to adapt my theories to both logic and empirical reality. So I've always found that it's very humbling to um, subscribe to the scientific method. What is not humbling, what I think is profoundly the opposite of humble and is in fact very arrogant, is to say, my opinions are true because I believe them. So because I believe there's a God, because I believe soldiers are virtuous, because I believe the state exists, because I believe in the collective good, without any proof, any evidence, any empirical justification or any of that stuff, it's true because I believe in it. It's true because I want it to be true. That to me seems incredibly arrogant. Anybody who subjects themselves to logic, the test of empiricism, the test of reproducibility, the scientific method, either in the realm, of course, of science or in capitalism, uh, in the realm of economics or consumer demand or in philosophy to, to logic and uh, in, um, in society or politics to empiricism and logic, anybody who subjects themselves to an external criteria for truth is naturally humble. And I think that's something that people who are religious or who are statists just don't understand. So when they say to us that we're arrogant because we demand or expect some sort of proof for somebody's opinions, like if I say that the, uh, the sky is plaid and somebody says to me, well, can you prove that? And I say, well, it's really arrogant for you to expect proof for me. Um, well, actually, I'm the one who's being arrogant because I'm saying that my opinion should be respected regardless of any kind of external proof or logic. And so I think that kind of arrogance has always troubled me. Arrogance is occurring in the situation between a statist or a religious person and a, uh, an empiricist or a rationalist. But it is, not, um, uh, it is not arrogant on the part of the person who's demanding some kind of proof. I mean, can you imagine going to a scientific theory or a mathematical theory and saying, uh, a mathematical conference saying 2 plus 2 is 5, and somebody says, well, I don't think that's the case. Can you tell me how you arrived at that conclusion? And they say, well, that's really arrogant for you to expect that from me. I think it's actually really arrogant to just expect people to respect 2 plus 2 is 5 when you have no proof for it. Now, somebody has asked, do you know if there is gold in China? Not exactly the next question I was expecting to get, but I'm sure 
that there is oh wait no that was a response to Francois who has says I know all truths it was Francois I got it <laughs> I caught uh, on that religion was bunk after reading Greek mythology ah very interesting right and you know what's interesting about that word mythology uh, just as a by the by that uh, people like using the word mythology for other people's religions but they don't feel nearly as comfortable using that word for their own religions right so when I talk about Christian mythology um, people get sort of uh, upset. I also find it quite useful when I'm talking about uh, people uh, with people about religion to not use the word God but to use the word gods. Do you believe that gods exist? Because as soon as you go into the plural then you begin to short circuit the religious person's mind which is good because it can start helping them to think a little bit more uh, originally. Well, are there any other questions that people have? It is now quarter to six so we've been plugging along for a little bit over an hour and a half. Is there any other major questions that people have at the uh, at the moment uh, for either myself or Christina or anybody else who's on the uh, chat at the moment? Will you move to the United States? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. I sure would like the lower taxes, but um, uh, I uh, would have... It's not the easiest thing in the world to move to the States anymore, even if you're a professional. So uh, it's something that we will uh, we will think about. How would you suggest that I bring these into the light with my parents? Um, what I would do, uh, if you have um, a lazy boy and some Velcro, I would get them to sit down, uh, lash them down a little bit, and mm, play them the podcasts uh, from one to maybe 230. You wouldn't want to go right to the end because that could be considered cruel. And you also might, just for the humanity of it, give them a catheter and some water. Um, you can, um, I guess you couldn't really play them sped up at all because they're already pretty fast to begin with. Um, but I think that would be uh, that would be very helpful. Um, somebody has said, as far as moving to the U.S. goes, it is uh, very easy. Just move to Mexico and cross the border from there. Yes, because I can blend with the Mexicans like you wouldn't believe. Because that's really my, I'm the blue-eyed Mexican guy. But um, bringing this stuff up with your parents is a very very difficult um, situation. It is a very very tricky thing to uh, bring this stuff up to your parents with your parents. I think it's absolutely important to do it. I think it's very, very, very crucial to do it um, for a number of reasons. If you haven't brought it up with your parents already, in other words, if it's not part of your regular relationship with your parents, then it is going to be... It's for, it's for a damn good reason you haven't brought it up already. And so recognize that it's going to be an explosive issue. When you start to talk to your parents about objective ethics, what you're saying to them basically is this. What you're saying to your parents when you bring up objective ethics is this. Did you have authority over me because you knew about morality and as because you knew more and I knew less that you were communicating facts to me? Is that why you had authority over me as a child? Or did you have authority over me because you were bigger, stronger, more powerful and had the control of the economic resources? I mean, I know that sounds like a pretty abstract way, but that's how it hits people. That's how it hits people in their soul. That's how it hits parents in their soul. It's the same question that we have about God, right? Do we worship God because God is good? You can ask this to a Christian. Or do you worship God because God is powerful? Right? These are two very different things. If you worship God because God is good, then you have to um, prove that God is good, which obviously they can't do it. And if you say... Um, do you respect your parents because your parents are wise and knowledgeable? 
then you should not feel any kind of discomfort bringing up questions of ethics with them because they should be open to and understand them and be clear about them and have a good uh, way of communicating them because right, but then it's going to be part of your regular conversation. If you feel any doubt or, or hesitation about bringing this stuff up with your parents, it's because your parents um, had authority over you because they had power over you and not because of any virtue that they possessed. And that is something that parents uh, really have a tough time accepting. That they all think that they were trying to do the best and be virtuous and good parents, and yet what is not uh, going to happen is that they're going to be comfortable with the position that you will have when you start to question them about authority, which is that you had authority over me because you were bigger, stronger, and more powerful, not because you had any kind of wisdom or knowledge. And parents, it's, that's a deeply, deeply, deeply shocking and uh, enraging thing for most parents to hear. So um, Greg has uh, commented, don't do it if you fear losing your parents. And um, my humble rejoinder to that would be that if you fear losing your parents because you are speaking the truth to them, then that may be all you need to know about your relationship with your parents. It still hurts. Amen. Amen, brother. It is a very, very painful uh, situation to go through. It provokes a lot of... You know, we... I'll just sort of mention this briefly because it's it's a very it's a difficult topic. But when we're children, we go through a great deal of shock and pain when we are bullied. But because everyone is bullied and the whole society, all, all the social ethics these days pretty much are based on bullying, if you look at the state and the church, which are our two primary sources of, of ethics, everything's based on bullying. So what happens is it becomes normalized to us. Everyone gets bullied. Everyone is a bully. Um, uh, the, the government is a bully. Uh, the school is a bully. Our church is a bully. Our families are bullies. Our extended families are bullies. Our friends are bullies. Our relationships often are bullying, uh, based on bullying. And so we, the, the first, the primal shock and, and, and horror that we experience as children when we're bullied gets dissolved into this normal, normalized social soup of, well, everyone is, uh, uh, everyone is a... Uh, a bully and so it becomes normalized now what happens is when we begin to ask questions of our family is we're denormalizing the bullying we are exposing ourselves to being re-bullied because what happens is we simply stop talking about these things with people and the reason we stop talking about them with people is because they bullied us and as soon as we start talking about it with them we are re-experiencing that bully and that is a very very different uh, that is a very different situation so somebody said, don't say amen. That means so let it be. You're right. I should replace that with inshallah. But um, uh, that is uh, something that we begin to re-experiencing that bullying that was so shocking for us very early in life. And that is a very difficult uh, position to be in. It is very destabilizing. It makes you feel like you're leaning over a cliff without any support. It also makes you feel when you begin this process that you're throwing yourself off a cliff and hoping that one random incoming wave is going to intervene between you and the rocks that you feel like you're going to hit for sure. So it is a very difficult and dangerous uh, thing to go through. It's not something that I think you should go through without a support group of some kind, whether that's friends, whether that's us, or professional support in the form of a therapist. But uh, it is very, um, I think it's very important to ask these questions of your family, but don't underestimate how difficult it's going to be emotionally to do it. 
Uh, somebody who mentioned here, your statement about not being treated uh, as a kid really struck me. Uh, would you like to expand on that uh, on that at all? I guess I mean treated well, or? You were talking about uh, being uh, treated as a kid in general, you know, by the, the state, uh, in school. Basically, every decision you make, you, you cannot make on your own. So you, when you said, well, I'd like to be free for one, for one for one time, you know, if, if I could ever have that in my life. And that's when I realized that, that it's true. You, th there's basically nothing you you are allowed to, uh, to do yourself. And that, that's, that's really in the back of your head of everybody. And it's an awful feeling. Yeah, and when you begin to expose that feeling in yourself by demanding freedom from those in your life. I mean, all, all, all we're asking for when we talk to people, all I'm asking for when I talk to people is... Let me be free to express express my opinions. Um, let me be free to question your opinions. Let me be free to ask questions, to be curious. I'm not going to bully anybody. I'm not going to say to them that they're stupid for believing what they believe. Because if they're really stupid, I'm not going to tell them. Right? That's like calling a retarded kid retarded. I mean, that's just kind of cruel. I mean, if somebody's genuinely stupid and based and just really based on... I just don't deal with them. But when you begin to ask for freedom to be yourself, to speak about what is important to you in your personal relationships, it's then that you really begin to realize what a what a tiny and claustrophobic little box you've been living in your whole life. And that's certainly been my experience. It's been Christina's experience. It's been the experience of some people who've sent me uh, emails at a, at a more personal level through this conversation. But um, when you begin to be yourself, to be—I mean—all you want to be is honestly yourself with people. When you begin to be honestly yourself with people, people start to flee. They start to attack you. Uh, they start to dismiss you. They start to bully you. They start to—they uh, just—and generally, uh, as somebody's pointed out here, they just—they uh, flee like you've just lit their hair on fire. And that—that, uh, that, that of course, is, is, is what happened to me, as you've seen from my photo. But. Um, that is, uh, when you stop conforming to other people's expectations and you begin to be genuine, genuinely yourself and you talk about what is genuinely important to you, uh, people panic. The moment that you're self-actualized, the moment that you have some sort of independent existence from cliches and propaganda and culture and history and family and bullshit and religion and statism, as soon as you think for yourself, boy, it's like, uh, it's like going to the gym where you haven't washed for two weeks. You sure get some legroom. They hide their kids from you, absolutely. Absolutely. You are incredibly dangerous to people's uh, sense of social security um, when you begin to think for yourself. And what they're desperately afraid of is you having their kids ask the questions of them that they've never been able to ask of the people around them. Um, and so, yeah, it is a, a very challenging thing to go through. It's absolutely essential. And this is why I talk about the politics uh, the, the, but personal freedom prior to political freedom. You can't be any more free in your relationship with the state, even within your own mind, than you can be with your own family. And that's why I really focus on getting people to deal with their own family issues instead of the state, because we can't change the state. We can't change the state, but we can change our situations with our families and with anybody who's bullied us at a personal level. That we have some effect on. There's not much we can do to overthrow the state from our own uh, uh, rooms and within our own conversations, but we can demand and expect and, and extract emotional freedom from the people around us. And that means that uh, being honest about what's important to you, being curious about other people's opinions, and not accepting 
put-downs or dismissals or uh, hostility or indifference or anything like that to what's important to you. If somebody loves you, then they should love also and be curious about what is important to you and what you value. And if all they do is put that down, I just can't for the life of me imagine why you'd want to spend your time with them because life is short. On that note, <laughs> does anyone have anything that they would like to uh, to add to that? I guess everyone's gone uh, left to talk, talk to their families. That's good. That means we'll have lots of uh, um, uh, lots of uh, interactivity next week, which would be great. Well, thanks so much, everybody, obviously, for uh, participating in this conversation. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. Everything that people are posting on the boards, everything that people are emailing me, the conversations that you're having with others, uh, I really, really appreciate it. I think it's fantastic, not for my sake, but just because uh, this stuff is the truth. And uh, this stuff is important, and this stuff is what is going to set the world free. And it is really, really hard, and there's nothing wrong with that. If it was easy, the world would be free already, and I'd be talking to myself again, which would be something that would uh, require more medication from Christina than she could probably get a hold of. And so um, I think that uh, I, I think it's absolutely crucial that we do this stuff. It is very difficult, but we are the hardy souls who will drag the world to a higher place. And I think that's well worth uh, spending your life on. So uh, thanks so much, everyone, for listening. I will uh, edit out the ghastly silences where my topics were not uh, striking people's emotional chords. And uh, thank you so much uh, for, for listening. And uh, I will talk to you guys soon.